Good morning. Good morning. Good to see each of you out today. Uh, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 1. You may already be there, and if you are, say amen. Good, good. For the last several months, I'm going to go ahead and get started. We've already read God's Word aloud. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and get started in this text. Um, for the last several months, we have been in the book of Acts, and we have gotten to chapter through chapter 5, and we have entered into, and I was going to go into chapter 6 today, uh, but before I do that, I want to speak over order in the church. Yesterday, um, I was presented with that, and I want to get to some of that. And so, uh, you know, we're going to look at order, we're going to look at overseers, bishops, qualifications, deacons, uh, we're not going to go over all of that today, but we are going to see that there is a necessity for it and why. So uh, we're getting to the point in Acts where order must be maintained, right? Right? I mean, there, there was 120, and then, then there was 3,000 added to that, and then there was 5,000 added to that. And each time in those chapters, you see, whether it was in chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5, you see where multitudes were added with those numbers. Right? And so it wasn't just an 8,000 number. It was much more than that. Much more than that. And when you have that many people, if you don't have order, things can get out of control pretty quick. False teachings can come in. Doc doctrines that are, that are not true can come in and plague the people and be a blight on the church and things can happen. And so order is something that has to take place. In the early church, it exploded with growth overnight. Days, and it was over thousands. And while this growth is, is good and it's a glorious display of God's wonderful work, that growth must be maintained. It must be in order. And it poses a huge problem for those in charge. A huge problem. Turn with me to the book of Exodus for just a moment. Exodus in chapter 18. Exodus in chapter 18, second book of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus. We are looking at after they came out of Egypt, Moses here has a similar problem that the early church had. He's got all of these people, and now he's got to do something with them. All of these people that are coming to him and looking to him for the answer. Do you know that when people get together, problems arise? <laughs> Common sense, right? When people get together, problems arise. Well, we could sit all sit down right here. We could get everybody together and we would see pretty quickly problems would arise. Let alone adding a million people to that. Or the early church with upwards of 20,000 by this point. I don't know. I mean, it could have been. 
And so we have to remember that problems arise when you get mass people together. Listen to what it says in 18, Exodus 18, 13 through 24. The next day, Moses set to judge the people. And the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, by the way, it's mentioned at the beginning of the chapter, saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, What is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me and I decide between one person and another. And I make them know the statutes of God and his, and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, what you are doing is not good. So this obviously was a very wise man. Or maybe he was just looking from the outside in and could see, brother, this is going to wear you out. And so he mentions to him, Listen to what it says in verse 17. He says, what, what you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice. I will give you advice, and God will be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God. And you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God. Does this sound familiar? Sounds similar to Acts chapter 6, doesn't it? When, it begins, when we begin to look out for deacons. Some of the same terminology is used. Listen to what it says. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens, and let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure, and all this people also will go to their place in peace. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he said. He did all that he said. We see this similar, similar story when we go in to the book of Acts in chapter 6. Howbeit a little bit different, but we get the gist. There's a lot of people, and with that comes a lot of responsibilities, and with that, men must be chosen in order to instruct and to keep order. With the great masses, people needed help. You fast forward to Acts, you see the quick growth of the church. The apostles needed that help. They needed order. They needed men capable of handling doctrine and of good report, above reproach. They needed men that were full of the Holy Spirit. 
Not just deacons that served, but deacons that were able to administer and serve in a way of teaching and in a way of showing the truths of God's word. Full of the Holy Spirit. And you see that one of the first examples of that is the preaching deacon Stephen. One day I'm going to get deacon, uh, David to preach for me. Uh, he hasn't yet, but one day uh, hopefully he might, he might preach for me. He's going to be preaching David, uh, the deacon. But Stephen was a preaching deacon, and he testified of the goodness of God and all the, the doctrines that had been laid out there by the apostles. And he, he was stoned, and we know that he was killed for that, and God received his spirit on that day. But they have to be capable of handling doctrine, of good report among the people, full of the Holy Spirit, living life above reproach, and so does the pastor. So does the elders. And so we see this played out, not only here in Exodus, where they had to be people that were above reproach, people that were good, people that loved the Lord, that sought after his guidance and his counsel. But we see it in Acts chapter 6, and we also see it as Paul writes to young Timothy in 1 Timothy Chapter 1, 2, and 3. In Acts 6, we'll begin to notice a, a developing establishment. The local church brought in order and obedience by way of apostleship, leading pastors, teachers, deacons. They will be in the forefront. Those deacons are chosen in chapter 6 to wait on tables in the ministry to make things fair between the widows, but also to, to minister and to, and to share the goodness of God. First Timothy gives us not only the qualifications for a deacon, but also for pastors, elders, bishops, whatever you want to call them. First Timothy will show us why sound doctrine or truth is so important in the church. And I won't get to the qualifications by no stretch of the imagination today, but just to verse 1. When Paul writes to Timothy here in this book, in this small letter, he is writing to encourage him to stay at Ephesus, to lead that local assembly. He is encouraging him to preach the word. And if you go to the end of the book, he is charging him to guard the deposit entrusted to him. This was Timothy's job, to guard the deposit that was trusted to him. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradiction of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. Those are the closing verses of verse 
1 Timothy. And so he charges him to guard the deposit entrusted to him. And this is not talking about money. This is talking about the deposit that had been given to him. And that was that local assembly where he was the pastor. Where he was to lead and where he was to charge and where he was to instruct, to encourage and to rebuke. He was to be a good steward over that assembly. He was called to lead the church, that local assembly. Thereby he had to guard it. Now, four years ago, I started 1 Timothy, and I stopped. I stopped. I had a question in my heart that I couldn't answer, a doctrinal issue. And so I stopped 1 Timothy. And when I got to 1 Timothy in chapter 3 for the qualifications of an overseer, it wasn't that I wasn't meeting the qualifications, but I'd had so many different people talking about so many different things about being the husband of one wife, I had to stop and really consider in my heart and pondering for four years. For four years, the Lord has moved in my heart and, you know, we're to examine daily. And for four years, He's moved and He's grown, grown me, I believe, in the faith. And I do see this text now settled in my heart. At one time it was not settled and and I would go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And we're not going to get into the what I do believe there in that text. But just know that the Lord has settled that in my heart. So I feel that we can move on now. And and I don't ever want to mislead the church. I would rather stop on something that if I don't understand it or it's not settled in my heart than just to preach it and and, and keep going. And you need to know that. The Lord has been working in my heart over this one particular text. Doctrinal issues, so I felt it better to stop as opposed to moving on. Now, with that being said... I look at 1 Timothy, I see where it will aid us as we go through Acts and the establishment of the early New Testament church. Young Timothy was a disciple of of Christ. He, He loved Christ Jesus. And you can see this in Acts 16 that we've not even gotten to yet. His mother and his grandmother, they were women of faith as the second letter that's given to Timothy states. His mother and his grandmother played a huge role in laying down foundational truths of the scripture that Paul would then come back on and capitalize and encourage him in. But you see in his mother and in his grandmother, faith. They had a vested interest in the foundation of Timothy's theology. He was a young man of faith. And his mother and his grandmother encouraged him. You see how important the family is? 
This one, this one man, Timothy, his mother and his grandmother encouraged him, taught him, showed him the way of righteousness, exemplified that faith before him. And we know that this set Timothy up, obviously by God's grace, it set Timothy up for the person that he became here in the letter that Paul is writing to this person. Verse 1, it says this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God. (laughs) By command of God. Later on in 1 Timothy, you see that if a person desires the office of an elder or a, or a bishop, it's a, it's a noble task. And here Paul says it's a command. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command. He was an apostle by command. God came down and chose him, revealed himself to him by command. Paul was an apostle. But he says two things here to lift up young Timothy. To place his heart in a place of remembrance to encourage him. And it should encourage all of us today. Paul begins the letter to encourage. And I love this. I love how he starts. I love everything about it. And the reason why is because now I am 40 years old. I've been pastoring for 13 years. I've been preaching for 15. And if someone would have written this to me years and years ago, it would have encouraged me. And now as I'm 40 and I look back, I look back and I see how. I would be able to encourage a younger minister in the faith. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope. Paul calls Christ two things here that we need to capitalize on, and I'm done. Two things. Paul calls Christ our Savior. And he calls him our hope. If I was a young minister and a letter from someone like Paul was presented to me. And he starts with the captain of our salvation. He starts with the the one that loves us. More than any, anybody else. And he speaks of Christ. It would encourage me. As a young minister. And especially how he starts it. Listen to what he says. Our Savior. When we hear that Christ is our Savior. To me it encourages me and it lifts me up. I love to sing the story. I love to sing the story. We just, we just sang it. Of Jesus and his what? And his love. Our Savior. 
He starts with our Savior. Timothy, our Savior. We have this commonality, Timothy. Remember that. Our Savior. The same Christ Jesus that saved Paul is the same one that saved Timothy, is the same one that saved me, and the same one that saved Nelson. The same Jesus. The same Savior. And the word Savior there means, we know what it means, deliverer, the rescuer. For young ministers, this is very directing. He's directing his attention to his Savior, which is everything. He's our rescuer, our deliverer. He's our knight in shining armor, right? The captain of the Lord's host that stood before Joshua. He's our prince in blazing glory and our king over all things. This is our savior, our deliverer. Young Timothy, this should encourage you. As it encourages me and as it should encourage you, church. That Jesus is our savior, our rescuer, deliverer. I praise God that he delivered our dear sister Willie May. I praise him for it. Because she was in agony. Not only did he deliver her soul from sin, but he delivered her flesh as well. I praise him for it. The text moves on, however, and Paul calls the Savior also our hope. And people get this word so mixed up with today's terminology. It's not, well, I hope we get to go to Six Flags. Is that still a thing? Six Flags in Texas? Is that still real? Okay. I hope we get to go to Six Flags or I hope we don't have church on Wednesday night. Some people say that, right? I hope the pastor calls off church on Wednesday night because we are all wore out. Well, I called off Sunday night, but I'm still going to have church on Wednesday night, so y'all get over it. (laughs) It's not a hope as a, a wish. But remember, this is to encourage Timothy. So what is he driving at when he says, even in these simplistic terms, as Savior and hope, what is he saying? Our hope, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope. The word hope in the Greek is elpo. And I don't know if I pronounced that right. I don't care if I pronounced it right. It's E-L-P-O. I can't speak Greek. I just know how to look it up and tell you what it means. It means to anticipate with pleasure, with confidence. In this case, it would be translated and used like this to Timothy, to Timothy, to Matthew, or to whoever is in Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus is our surety. 
Our expected end, our expectation. We have confidence in that. We have pleasure in that. This is what the text means when you look it up. And so it's not just some wish that we say, oh, I wish this happens. But no, no, we have an expected end that is sure and that is steadfast. Jesus Christ, our hope. And so he starts the letter to young Timothy with, and I say young Timothy, that term is young. I, I feel young. My children wouldn't call me that. I don't know how young young Timothy was. But Paul could have called me young Matthew, so whatever. What does this mean for Timothy? What does it mean? I'll tell you what it means. What it means for him and what it means for us. Because we're all part of the priesthood. We've all been adopted into it. If we have been saved by the grace of God, by faith... We're part of that. What does it mean for Timothy? Our Savior and our hope? It means this. Look up. Keep the faith. Press on. For the end is worth it. The end is worth it. That expected end is absolutely worth it. So he starts this letter to encourage Timothy, to keep the end always in sight. Our Savior and our hope. That hope is for something that is going to be, that's going to come later. That expected end. So he starts this first verse with keep the end always Inside, And as you move on through this passage, we're, and as I've already said, if we've went over chapter 1 and 2, but it was so long ago, I feel it necessary to go back over it because we've already forgotten it, I'm sure. Uh, 1 and 2 again, but we're going to get into the false teachers. We're going to get into to bad doctrine. We're going to get into a lot of different things. And then we're going to get into these qualifications for... Elders, bishops, for deacons. And as we get into that, we're going to go back to Acts chapter 6. And we're going to see, we're going to see how that comes into the early church. And why it was needed. The purposes. And so I pray that God would bless you this morning by the reading of his word. Let's pray.